It is important and refreshing to receive a journal like Sources. I rely on Sources for a deeply informed and well-curated collection of essays responding to current events and issues in contemporary Jewish life. Hi, I'm Claire Sufrin, editor of Sources, a journal of Jewish ideas. We get in-depth information from noted scholars, often in dialogue with one another, which is not to say always in agreement. In the newly released spring issue, scholars examine the theme of Jewish life tomorrow, reimagining key Jewish concepts for the present and future. Read, reflect, and subscribe to the award-winning journal at sourcesjournal.org. Hi, my name is Daniel Hartman, and I'm the president of the Shalom Hartman Institute. Today is Wednesday, March 21st, 2021, and this is For Heaven's Sake, a podcast from the Hartman Institute's I Engage Project. Our theme for today is post-election reflections, the political tribes of Israel. In each edition of For Heaven's Sake, Yossi Klein-Halevi, Senior Research Fellow at the Institute here in Jerusalem, and myself discuss a current issue central to Israel and the Jewish world. And then Ilana Steinhain, director of the Hartman Faculty in North America, explores with us how classical Jewish sources can enrich our understanding of the issue. Given the uniqueness of this session's theme, the discussants will be Yossi and myself. We return to our regular format with Ilana in our next podcast. Let's begin. Round four, for now four, but possibly five soon to come, of the seemingly interminable Israeli election process is over. While the final and official tally is not yet in, and you in the United States could relate to that, it once again seems that the system is deadlocked, unable to deliver a clear victor. In fact, when analyzing the numbers, the pro-Netanyahu and anti-Netanyahu camps have virtually the same number of seats as a year ago pre-COVID, and all the issues and tensions and crises and discussions that it generated. No one seems to have changed their mind. And as a result, once again, the possibility is being raised of another election, which in all probability will end with the same result. And yet as frustrating as the process has been, it does offer us a clear picture of ourselves. As we prepare for the Seder and its retelling of the story of our origins, This is an apt moment to reflect on what is the story that these elections tell us about who we have become as a people. One thing is clear. After 3,000 years, we are still a nation of tribes, united around a shared Jewish or Israeli identity, but deeply divided over what that identity means and values. Even as the pundits debate the outcome and devise scenarios for Coalition A or B, we need to consider deeper and more long-term questions. Who are the tribes that have emerged from these elections? What are their values? What place do liberal values have in the Israeli political debate? What is the future of the political center? And what does it mean to be in the center? How worried should we be about the rise of the far-right religious Zionist party and its Kahanist and homophobic dimensions. And what do these elections tell us about the future of the Arab-Israeli community in the Israeli mainstream? Yossi, it's wonderful to be with you. Always. 
Part of me wished it would have been under other contexts, but we're here, yes, in our fourth election. And I can't think of a better person who I'd like to talk to about them. Mutual. Thank you. One sense, these last four elections have been a referendum on whether Netanyahu should continue as prime minister. In the latest election, no less than six parties ranging from left to center to right agreed that Netanyahu must go. And yet he appears to still be standing, even though he may not be able to put together a coalition. Before we get into the tribes, let's talk about, there is a tribe, and let's call it the Netanyahu tribe. What does this tell you about the Israeli public and its attitude towards Netanyahu and his legal problems? So, Daniil, there's certainly a Netanyahu tribe, and it's extensive. But after four indecisive elections, I think we can conclude that this is not a majority of the population. Netanyahu was running in this last election with the strongest hand, arguably, that he's ever had. He is largely responsible for making Israel the first nearly fully vaccinated nation. He delivered four peace agreements with Arab countries in the last year. Yet, despite all of those really extraordinary achievements, he hasn't been able to form a narrow right-wing coalition. I sense that more and more Israelis are already living in the post-Netanyahu era. It's interesting. And whenever I hear you talk, even when I disagree with you, I find myself changing my mind. So it's always a pleasure listening to you. I want to put another side to it without discounting what you're saying, because I feel that part of the Netanyahu tribe is founded on a deep Jewish value. And that's the value which we're about to sing about on Pesach, and that's the value of Dayen. At the end of the day, it's true, he was running on a great card, but it was also a terrible card. Israelis experienced, while right now there's euphoria, were capable of some memory retention. And the feeling that the wrong things were done for the wrong reasons, that people were pushed out who could have really helped because they might have threatened him, the financial safety net, the budget. There's also a negative story together with the positive, and I'm not sure which one weighs more powerfully. But I think Israelis, the Netanyahu tribe is made up of people who, maybe it's two Jewish values. One is called Dayenu and the other one is called Hakaratatov, recognizing and giving thanks. And that while Netanyahu is not perfect, I think a big part of the Netanyahu tribe are people who say Dayenu. At the end of the day, Israelis see themselves as the 12th happiest people in the world, which is insane. We're in the Middle East and we're competing with Scandinavia. And I think they give him a lot of credit for that. It's true, he doesn't have a majority, but the other side doesn't really have a majority. It's like so split. But listen, 30 seats. His closest competitor is now, what, 17? And after how many years? And I think it's not that Israelis just, you know, they got used to it. I think there's a sense that even though it's not perfect, this would have been enough. And I think a lot of the people who refused to move from him, the Netanyahu tribe are the tribe of people who didn't see a better alternative and said, Dayenu here. And there's much for us to be thankful for. But let's go beyond the personal part, because I want us to focus principally on the tribes. And I think, though, you're also right that if at this moment he couldn't move forward, this is more or less as good as it's going to get. I just want to say, Daniel, that what you're saying is so important. 
as you well know, I have not been shy about my opinions on Netanyahu, but I respect people who voted for him. I understand people who voted for him, even though for me, it is anathema. And it's exactly because of that, because I have to acknowledge that the people who are voting for him are acting out of legitimate Jewish values. Yeah, there's a seriousness. As I believe I am too, in my opposition to him. Correct. It's interesting. And I think one of the beauties of Israel's democracy, and people say, oh, you know, this fifth election, the system is to be changed. I think the system is great. I think, by and large, if you look at this election, there were serious, serious parties with serious people. Since I like to keep my political inclination secret so that nobody has a clue, unlike you, Yossi, where I stand, I might have wanted another major figure. But at the end of the day, most people who went to vote felt very good about the choices they had and felt that they were able to vote for serious people. You know, that's a dayenu too about the health of our democracy. But let's talk about the different choices, the tribal choices, not the parties. Let's divide it initially. There's center, there's left, there's right. I don't know if we'll have the time beyond that. There's also the Haredi tribe and there's the Arab tribes. Let's, for our discussion, speak about five tribes, even though there's a lot of sub-tribes and intermarriage between some of them. Let's start with what's often the most confusing to identify. Something is emerging. It sees itself and a lot of its identity is to be oppositional to the Netanyahu tribe. But there is a significant group, actually larger than the Likud itself, who define themselves as center. Netanyahu doesn't define himself as center anymore. But there's a whole other group of people who see themselves, and that's Yeshatid with their 17 seats, and Gidon Sar, who use the word center and don't just define themselves as right. Maybe Sar. Let's look at Yeshatid and Blue and White. Together, there are 25 25 seats. And there's probably some more, you know, Gidon Saar, while he himself calls himself right, all the people who voted for him were also part of the centers. That means there's 31 seats, bigger than the Likud. How do you define the center in Israeli life beyond just the fact that I'm not Netanyahu, unless not being Netanyahu has an ideological dimension to it? I'll speak as a centrist. And and this is something that I've really been by the way, I have to stop you <laughs> because, you know, when I read the talkbacks on your articles, people refuse to accept that you're a centrist. So <laughs> we're centrists in our own. Uh, yes, you'll see my centrist friend. Danielle, the people who responded to my last article and denied that I'm a centrist, I know them. <laughs> <laughs> so it's very personal. The problem is not that they, you know them, is they know you yesterday. So you've betrayed them. <laughs> exactly. They feel betrayed. I can see that. <laughs> Okay, my centrist friend, because I'm the real centrist, you know that. (laughs) My sense, really, as somebody who's been voting for centrist parties for 30 years and always looking for that nuance that respects the insights of left and right, that is trying to accommodate the secular religious divide, that understands that the essence of Israeliness is in gathering in gathering of paradoxes and our challenges. Some of them, I think, are insoluble. To my perspective, it's only the center that has the capacity to hold our contradictions and to try to make sense. So what is centrist? So until this election, I would have said to you, a centrist is somebody 
who agrees with the left that there must be a Palestinian state and agrees with the right that it's too dangerous to create a Palestinian state. And so has internalized the left-right debate. A centrist believes that the entire land of Israel, in principle, is all mine, kulashali, but is ready in practice to compromise because of the existence of another people between the river and the sea. A centrist on the Palestinian issue is grappling with these deep contradictions and has internalized the debate. You know, the poet Chaim Buri, the late Israeli poet, wrote a poem called Ami Milchemet Achim, I Am a Civil War. And a centrist is a civil war. Would you agree with this statement? That your definition of a centrist, I agree, every centrist has to somehow balance that. But I think there's a new centrist ideology emerging in Israel. And that is a centrist ideology in which democracy and its institutions need to be preserved despite our other ideological commitments. The history of Israel is one in which there's always the great issues that dominate and everything else is secondary. And I think part of what centrism wants to look for is certain givens of a country that can't be bartered for the sake of political expediency, or I'll give you a centrist right-wing perspective. A centrist is somebody who believes that a two-state solution is impossible for security reasons, but recognizes that Arab rights, including Palestinian rights in Judea and Samaria, is something that he or she has to deal with. A centrist is somebody who, like you said, like I have an inner war, but not only there's an inner war, there's also things that have to be above. Not everything is subservient to certain ideological reasons. There's certain core holies about democracy and the courts. And maybe even also in this last election it emerged, a centrist is also somebody who wants a different political discourse in Israel, even if it doesn't serve your interest. Even if your interest is served by saying A, B, or C and being more aggressive or fear campaigns, there's something about the overall well-being of the country which sits heavily on your soul. And these latter two are even more important because, as you and I know, while it might change, the issue of a Palestinian state is not an immediate issue that has even been in the conversation in Israel. So there's this new centrist beyond the foreign policy. Would you agree with that? Yeah. What has emerged in the last year or two, as democracy has become more and more under fire from the right, is a shift in the centrist emphasis. I would say today the core of a centrist position is to uphold equally Israel as a Jewish state and Israel as a democratic state and refuse to get into that argument of which is more important to you. For a centrist, Jewish and democratic are entwined. They're inseparable. If you degrade one of those identities, you are doing violence to the essence of Israel. See, and the only thing I would push back is that In both cases, you speak about a centrist as embodying both sides refusing to compromise. I think part of what centrism needs are its own ideologies, which it puts above. Centrist is not, you know, the golden mean, because then there's a powerfulness to it all the time. And I think part of what's emerging in the centrist camp in Israel is ideology. 
It's not always wrestling. No, no, there's certain things that are more important. I would add that. I think some of that is emerging as a part of this centrist camp. Hi, my name is Rebecca Starr, and I work at the Shalom Hartman Institute of North America. And I wanted to tell you about some exciting events that are coming up soon. Shortly after Passover, the Jewish world will collectively commemorate the Holocaust on Yom HaShoah. And then, just one week later, we'll celebrate Israel's independence on Yom Ha'atzma'ut. On April 7th and 8th, and April 14th and 15th, the Shalom Hartman Institute will be running full days of virtual programs with incredible teachers, rich tech study, and opportunities for deep conversation. Both programs are available free of charge. To find out more and to register, visit shalomhartman.org slash events. Let's go now. Let's go to the right. Now, there is a whole group of people who call themselves right. Netanyahu, who actually is a centrist on a lot of issues, but that doesn't matter. He calls himself right. Bennett calls himself right. Yamina. The religious Zionist camp calls itself right. Gidon Saar calls himself right. And so from Gidon Saar to the Kahanists are all using this category called right. We're the right wing. Before we look at some of the subdivisions, and I want to speak about the Kahanist phenomena, which has become mainstreamed as a part of the right wing. What do the different groups of right wing have that by virtue of which they're called right wing? Because Bennett, for example, in the last election, and Gidon Saar, came out with centrist positions vis-a-vis the Supreme Court, vis-a-vis the need to heal the people and a conversation that's not divisive. These were integral parts of their campaign, but they still call themselves right. They wouldn't like being called centrist right because centrist right moves you a little bit. No, we're full right. Let's start with what's the core in your mind of a right-wing position? Is it only foreign policy? The mainstream right used to be defined by two cores. One was a loyalty to the entirety of the land of Israel, that you don't partition the land, and that goes back to the 1920s. That was one of the pillars of the right, and it remains so to this day, and it unites all the parties that you mentioned. So every one of them is against what? Is against territorial compromise or against Palestinian sovereignty? Between the river and the sea, there can be only one national sovereignty. But what used to distinguish another core value of the right, of the mainstream right, was a commitment to the democratic ethos. The Likud was a classical liberal party. It championed individual rights. Daniil, do you know that the party that led the campaign in the 1960s against the imposition of martial law over Arab-Israeli citizens, was Menachem Begin's Cherut party, the antecedent to the Likud. Today, it's inconceivable. And so the mainstream right has forfeited one of its two core positions. It is no longer a party of freedom. Now, it's even more interesting, Daniel, is that historically, the mainstream right was more for individual liberties than the Labour Party. The Labour Party was more collectivist, Individual rights were not a core principle, but it was for the right. The Israeli right was the party of individual rights. That is amazing. Again, I want to add one dimension, or maybe two. The political right, even though the Likud is the one which put forth, and probably if the Saudis would line up, 
would agree to some form of a Palestinian state, regardless of what Netanyahu says in the election campaigns. But whether they are vehemently against or have great discomfort, I would say the right does not see territorial compromise as a solution for peace. They might be willing to do so, but they don't believe that the problem which is impeding peace is settlements and Israel's holding on to the land. I think that's one feature of the right. I think the second feature of the right is a very strong emphasis on the moral value of security. I'm not saying that the center or the left don't care about it, but when you have a spectrum of values, the right wing speaks of and sees itself as worrying more about issues of security. And I think this is one of the interesting shifts that's taken place in the right, especially the religious right, since the withdrawal from Gaza. You used to have a group of people said, I care about the land of Israel. That was the right. And the left said, well, I care about the Jewish people. Now, what's more important, Jewish people or land? And ultimately, Jewish people won. Because, you know, in our tradition, you shall live by them and not die by them is a central principle of our tradition. And when you try to elevate anything above the value of human life, in our tradition, you're ultimately going to lose. And that's what happened to the more religious right. But after withdrawal from Gaza, they shifted their policy. And the religious right doesn't speak so much about the holiness of the land. They actually are arguing, we care about the Jewish people more than you do. Because if you're willing to compromise on land, like you did in Gaza, you're endangering the Jewish people. And so the issue of the telos of Israel as creating a place where the first issue is safety for Jews and actually for all Israelis, I think that's another feature of the right. And I think that's one of its strongest moral claims on Israeli society. And I think it joins people who want to hold on to the wholeness of the land because of religious reasons, because they both at the end don't want to have compromises. But I think ideologically, that is a second part. And I think those who vote right say, yeah, I trust you. On the left, there's lots of generals. But at the end of the day, I trust the Likud or Netanyahu or Bennett or Saar to put the security of Israel higher up and to fight harder for it, whether it's versus Iran or whether it's versus America or whether it's versus anybody. And I think that is also a defining feature. Now, every group has a little bit of the other one, but this is its cause celebrity. This is its flag. I think you're right. And I think that the right sees itself as the defender of the Jewish people. And we've seen that expressed in the Jewish nation state law of a few years ago. The problem is that at least most of the right, not including Gidon Saar, but most of the right has made a decision to prioritize the Jewishness of the state at the expense of the democratic nature of the state. That's new for the mainstream right. Right, that price. There we're returning back to your first point, that the old right would not have compromised under those two, as in fact Benny Begin said, Equality for Israeli Arabs is not a security issue. There's one other feature about the Israeli right to understand this tribe, and it's important to listen to their own conversation. The Israeli right also believes that there is emerging in Israel 
a deep anti-democratic process in which certain elites, intellectual elites, judiciary elites, are usurping their power and are creating a dictatorship over the will of the people. Now, the more sophisticated articulated well, the less sophisticated, you know, speak about the dictatorship of the Supreme Court or the will of the people should prevail, when in all democracies, the will of the people only prevails within the context of law. But still, I think part of the right is also trying to reclaim a democratic tradition in Israel, which was trampled by the left wing from the beginning of the state in which the Histadrut and we are the country. And so there is a Menachem Begin dimension that is still emerging in which the issue, which we don't want to get into now of whether a prime minister who's indicted, whether an attorney general could change prime ministers of the country. Part of it is saying, you know, there's the old guard who are trying to reclaim a dictatorship. So there is a democratic tradition. I still think they haven't given it up completely. Daniel, I admire your attempt to find kafzchut, to find merit on the right. I find that more and more difficult, especially in the aftermath of this election, when the mainstream right legitimized and sponsored, actively sponsored, the rise of the Kahanists. We now have a racist, far-right party in the Knesset. This is unprecedented. Mayor Kahana, the spiritual father of the far right, was elected to the Knesset in 1984. Only him, his party, had all of one seat. And every time he would get up to speak, Prime Minister Yitzhak Shamir, who was no pushover, he was legitimately right. He could right wing. He was literally right wing. Every time Kahana got up to speak in the Knesset, Shamir led the Likud delegation in a walkout. They never sat there and never listened to him speak. And today we have a Likud prime minister who was urging people to vote for the far-right party because he was afraid they wouldn't get in and he needed them. I know, Yossi. Here too, again, I wish you didn't say that because I can't say you're wrong. I was very moved by what I just said beforehand. The truth is I still am. And, you know, there's something I want to encourage our listeners. I have a number of very, very moral people with intellectual integrity who are on the right wing. And I know there's abuses going on, and I think that's an example. But I don't want to paint all of the right wing because of that. You're right. But at the same time, and the truth is, I'm not even trying so hard because I see their faces. Part of our tradition in Hartman is we have to give each one their best reading. I'm tired of this canceling each other. I can't live in that universe. I can't. And I'm not a right wing. I am centrist like you. I don't want to ignore it. And I think part of the process of healing Israel ultimately is our ability to give each tribe its best reading and as a result, to be able to find new coalitions. But there is what you mentioned is this new development. And it goes back to the issue of the centrist versus right, where centrist says there's first certain issues that are holy that you don't touch. And those issues aren't just the land of Israel and they're not just security. There's also moral principles of human rights and democracy, similar to the Shamir and Begin of the past. And people said to me, you know, every country, I heard a colleague of mine was saying that in the United States, if you had a multi-party system, you would have five Ku Klux Klan members in the Congress at any given time. And in fact, today, you probably have them sneaking into various parties. So the fact that we have Kahanists 
is something that unfortunately every country does. But for us, and I think the deep failure of the right wing here was that winning took precedence, in this case, over a moral line that they know better not to cross. And even if Netanyahu says, you know what, at the end, I'm not going to put him in the ministry, I'm not going to listen to him. The fact is that Itamar Ben-Gvir, a Kahanist, has been mainstreamed and right-wing supporters cheered him because they saw him as necessary for their victory. In other words, winning, especially under the fabric of, I'm winning to keep Israel safe, or if I'm the Bibi tribe, I'm winning because Bibi is the one who we need to keep. Are there limits? Are there places that you can't go? And I think something broke today in Israeli society or over the last couple of weeks. And just like Humpty Dumpty, it's not self-evident that we can put it back together again. And we're going to have to give a serious accounting of this. A last word, Yossi, before we end for today. I think that the core of the centrist argument with the right today is that a centrist believes that Israel is responsible for two people. We're responsible for the Jewish people, and we're also responsible for the Israeli people. And these two peoples have a great deal of overlap, but they are not entirely the same. That's a great way of articulating it. I really, really like that. And that's a difference between where right-wing and centrist are diverging a little bit today. We take our Jewish responsibility seriously, and also our responsibilities to an Israeli people that has a Jewish majority component and non-Jewish minority components. You know, Yossi, we made one major mistake, and I wish this would be the only one, and that is that we thought we could deal with all the tribes today. I think we drilled down on centrist and on right-wing. I think we have to look a little bit more at the liberal right-wing dimension, but we didn't get to the left, and we didn't get to the Haredim, and we didn't get to the fascinating story of Arabs. Let's do another podcast. As our country and our people are trying to digest these elections, I think it's very important to continue this conversation because our whole goal is not to engage with the Israel you imagine, but to take the Israel that is and reimagine it. But you have to have an understanding of what Israel is about. Yossi, it's great being with you. For Heaven's Sake is a product of the Shalom Hartman Institute. It was produced by David Kelman and edited by Alex Dillon. And music is provided by SoCal. To learn more about the Shalom Hartman Institute, visit us online at shalomhartman.org. We want to know what you think about the show. You can write to us at forheavenssake at shalomhartman.org. Subscribe to our show in the Apple Podcast app, Spotify, and everywhere else podcasts are available. Yossi, and to all of our listeners, Chag Sameach, happy Passover to all. <laughs>